Welcome to the Mustang Owners Podcast. And now your host, Steve Hall. Welcome to the Mustang Owners Podcast. My name is Steve Hall and I'm the director of the Mustang Owners Museum. Most Mustang enthusiasts are familiar with National Parks Depot and Rick Schmidt. Rick, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Steve. I um, I did a little research, as I always try to do with our guests, because I want to sound, you know, I mean, and, and obviously with you and I, we have some personal experiences, but many times you can kind of learn a little bit more. Obviously, I found quite a few things regarding on online and uh, about, you know, National Parks Depot, and of course, they are a sponsor to the museum. Another fact is that some people may not recognize is that you have been the one sponsor continuously for National Mustang Day. So uh, we, we certainly appreciate that. And uh, I do know that uh, a lot of our folks expect to see National Must National Parks Depot on our decals that we send out. We have sent out over six years almost a hundred thousand of those decals. Wow! Yeah, they yeah. and they they go everywhere. I mean, they've gone to Dubai. They've gone to they've gone to every continent. Except for Antarctica, and uh, you know, because I don't think they have any Mustang people down there quite yet. I don't think they have the roads for it. Anyway, so I want to make sure we thank you for that. But uh, I wanted to kind of, you know, go a little different direction and uh, ask you a couple other questions. And the first one is going to kind of maybe give you a tone of where we're going today. So, Rick, what's your favorite musical instrument? Oh, my favorite musical instrument is uh, is percussion, the drums. I've been uh, when I was a, a young kid, uh, I took piano lessons, classical piano, for, uh, I don't know, six or seven years. And uh, But when I was in middle school, I, uh, I I wanted to learn how to play the drums. So we had a concert band, believe it or not, in our middle middle school. So so I started there, and then I just got my own drum kit and, uh, and kept on going through high school. So I've been drumming all my life. Well, I was going to ask you how long you've been playing, but I think you answered that. The one one time, this is probably, oh my gosh, we're going to date ourselves, myself a little bit. This might have been eight years ago or so. But uh, when I was at uh, at National Parks Depot at Oca Ocala, uh, you were gracious to take me around. I saw your car collection and your Kodak camera collection. Quite a memory here. I'm surprised I can remember that. But in the corner, you actually had a drum set set up. And so I was kind of curious, do you, I, it may not still be there, but I was curious if it's there. So every once in a while, just to kind of, you know, change the pace, you walk over there at maybe three o'clock in the afternoon and just, you know, let her rip. Uh, you know, I, I know if I had any musical talent, I would, that's for sure. Cause there's times you just need that little serenity now and people get it different ways. But, uh, did you do much, did you have a chance to do a little practicing there at that, uh, the, at the warehouse? That's what they're set up there for is, uh, and we kind of flow in and out because there's a lot of musicians that work here. So, uh, so, uh, we'll go for a, a couple of years getting together and doing jam sessions and, and then everybody gets a little bit busy. And we kind of it falls off of our calendar, and uh, it's been a while since I've actually sat behind my drum kit. I need to I need to make that a priority again and see if there's anybody out in the warehouse who's uh, ready to start playing as well. And uh, there's another very very talented drummer who's worked in our sales department here off and on since the early 1980s, uh, Jimmy Millsaps. Uh, he goes back there and keeps my drums. Uh, dust it off and and uh, warms them up and exercises them uh, almost on a weekly basis. 
Well, that's very cool. Like I said, that I was as you took me around, and I got a chance to see things. It's like I kind of saw that off in the corner, and of course, I, I knew what it was for because I know you had a very important gig in in twenty fourteen. Uh, you had probably you were the headliner at the Mustang fiftieth with a couple yeah. other guys. <laughs> and, yeah, and, interesting and, to throw together with only one rehearsal session, so. Yeah, uh, actually, I'm trying to remember. I don't think Donald's the one that put it together. I'm trying to remember. Uh, you had a trio. Who was uh, uh, Kyle Carraway? Kyle Carraway. That's right. That's right. He was. Well, he he was the front. He seemed to be enjoying the being the front man to the band too. So that was that was a lot of fun to have. Uh, yeah. So you, you guys and you guys did great. You guys really did well. So um, you know, for what for what it's worth. Well, okay, we'll go back to a little bit more serious part uh, of of the podcast. And you know, Rick and M. PD has been, you know, you guys have been part of the Mustang culture for so many years, but there are additional MPD connections that I would like to try to chat a little bit about, and one of those is the Lee I. Cook Award. It's a very prestigious award. In fact, we have Steve Pruitt's uh, award here on display in the museum as part of the MCA exhibit, but I wanted to ask, you know, how did that come about? What led you to put that together, and kind of, if you wouldn't mind, just share how that came about, because I think it's, it's no longer offered, but I think it was a great uh, great asset to the hobby. Boy, it's been so many years now. <laughs> it was not my uh, idea going in. It was a uh, it was it, it it was an idea that uh, germinated on the West Coast between uh, California Mustang Club and Norma Sakin, who was Lee Iacocca's uh, personal assistant. They wanted to do a special award at a show. What it, what it really boiled down to was uh, it was Norma's idea, Leah Iacocca's personal assistant, and when she pitched it to uh, Mr. Iacocca. Uh, he was all about it because the whole entire purpose of the award was to help raise funds and awareness for uh, uh, diabetes research. Since Mr. Iacocca had lost his uh, wife uh, to diabetes, that was the most near and dear charity to his heart that there was. They began the award uh, where it would be presented to somebody at a show with a car at the show and it was it was a kind of a strange amalgam of who's got the nicest car at the show combined with are they a good Samaritan and are they a good, uh, you know, uh, uh, contributor to the car hobby. It was just kind of awkward in that. And, and how I got involved was because there was is that somebody needed to sponsor the, the award. There had to be a revenue stream. Otherwise. How's the charity going to be supported? So I was contacted uh, by the club in California. Uh, I think it was by Craig Cunningham, if I remember right, uh, who's, in, who's a, a very old name in the, in the Mustang hobby, who's been clubbing it for uh, for, for decades now. Uh, great guy. They contacted me. I loved the idea. I sponsored the award. And once I got in on that sponsorship, uh, Norma reached out to me because she was interested in keeping it going around the country. And very soon early on, I started kind of influencing how we were presenting these awards because I told her, I said, you know, uh, this award should be less about who's got the nicest Mustang at the show and more about uh, who's the, uh, the uh, finest uh, uh, ambassador of this hobby and what this hobby and what Mustanging is all about. 
who are the good people that are attending these shows? Uh, who's who's you know who's who's so special that they should be recognized? Well, even if their car is in a million pieces at home in the garage and they didn't even bring a car to the show, shouldn't they be eligible for consideration? And secondly, I said we really ought to be putting more thought into this special award instead of trying to scramble it together day of show. What if you're at the award ceremony and you're doing the presentation and your winner is in is in a porta potty somewhere <laughs> and isn't there to, to to accept the award? So it evolved, it morphed. I got into a very very close relationship and friendship with uh, with Norma, who was just an amazing. A wonderful lady. Uh, obviously, that's why Mr. Iacocca relied up upon her so heavily right up to the end of his uh, life. And next thing you know, we were the major sponsor of the Iacocca Award, and I had the uh, the responsibility and the privilege of uh, choosing 10 events around the country each year. And in each one of these events, we would present a Lee Iacocca Award to a very worthy and uh, deserving recipient. So it was one heck of a ride. It was one heck of a privilege. And we really did recognize some fantastic people in the hobby. And I, I, on purpose, I chose shows from very prestigious, like the Amelia Island Concordia Elegance, to very grassroots. We would always present one at my Silver Springs Mustang shows every single year. And uh, I tried to, to, to pick up at least one of the MCA national events uh, from the Mustang Club of America each year. We, we recognized and presented awards not just to very famous, luminous uh, uh, Mustang heroes, but also right down to grassroots, just to club members who had been sacrificing of them, their time and themselves, you know, for decades to help out club members and to support the hobby. So we really spread it around uh, very well. That was another reason why I wanted it to be more of a predetermined thing where we thought hard about it and we did our research instead of just trying to swing a net around at a show and pick up whoever we might catch at the show. So uh, it was a lot of fun. Well, I think that's what made that special, that word so special is that, that people that got it, I mean, they were there many, I was at a couple of those shows when they got the award, uh, Silver Springs and MCA in particular, and they were moved. I mean, they were touched. They were honored. We had a lot of tears up there trying yeah. to present the awards because you're sitting there reciting all of the life's accomplishments of this person and, and how they've been such a good and ad admired person within their club or within the hobby. And uh, I would choke up presenting the awards and then they would come up and choke up accepting the awards. So uh, we were all a bunch of <laughs> ballers up there. Uh, you know, I, I remember when Steve Pruitt got his award, of course, at an MCA national, uh, Jeff Mays, had given it was you know up talking that when they do the award presentation to the owners of the cars, they did this pro, you know before that got started, and he started talking about this gentleman, not naming who it was or anything, and I was one of the few in the room that knew who was going who was going to win it. Uh, I, I don't know why Jeff told me, but he did. Anyway, uh, so I'm, I kind of look over to see Pruitt to see if Mr. Pruitt's kind of grasping that. We're talking about you. He, you know, Jeff's talking about you. Are you getting any of this? And he he wasn't paying much attention, to be honest with you. And all of a sudden, you know, they named Steve Pruitt. And someone actually had to tap him on the shoulder. Steve, you, you need to go see Jeff. And he goes over there. Had, it, it, it blew him away. He, he It's one of the times, if you know Mr. Pruitt, and he's a, he's a great friend, good friend, he was basically speechless. 
rare time yeah. he was actually speechless. He just wasn't prepared, uh, which is one of the neat things, but he, he knew that. And so when we did the museum and he called me up, he said, Steve, he said, I've actually put a really great, nice display case for the for the Leiacoca Award, and I've got the letter, and I've got all this. I'd like for you to you know, have it in the museum. And I looked at him, I said, are you crazy? I said, this is, this is, no, he said, no, 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 no. I want to share this with the MCA. He, uh, he was very giving of it. I mean, so it, it does yeah. have a, it's the most, to me, it was the most prestigious and, and award that was given out to the Mustang hobby at the time. You mentioned uh, Norma. Um, I met Norma a few times. What is she doing now, if you don't mind, if you might know? I'm just kind of, when you said that, I'm going, gosh, I, I, you lose touch because, of course, you know, with Mr. Iacocca passing away. But have, have you have, have you stayed in touch with Norma since that? Uh, I'm overdue for reaching out to her, uh, but we did we did stay in touch um, and have stayed in touch. Uh, you know, upon Mr. Iacocca's passing, I think she uh, assisted the family in, in settling out the details of his estate. Sure. And then she just uh, uh, went. She she had a small house, as I understand, kind of in the uh, up in the mountains, uh, maybe central northern California. And she uh, 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 settled back into her little home in the mountains, and uh, and hopefully is enjoying a, uh, a nice and relaxing and fulfilling retirement. Oh, I hope uh, so. But, uh, I have I haven't chatted back and forth with her for uh, two or three years now, which is on me. I really need to to reach out and check in with Norma and see how no. she's doing. She was a very very neat lady. Uh, I think she told yeah. me one time they had three cars in Leah Coca's garage. Now this this is I'm going by memory. But the most popular car in, the, I mean, he said she meant by what was used the most was the Dodge Caravan. Yeah, <laughs> she would. They would drive. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. would. They yeah, would drive. Caravan. You had a Caravan, a little Mustang, sixty-five or six Mustang convertible. Yep, and a Viper. Oh, if I, so, oh, I thought I also thought he had a, and maybe this has changed since. He also, I was told, had. Um, a uh, Iacocca Mustang. Now that he had at one time, maybe that's changed. He may have kept one of those for himself. I, I, I'm not sure on that. Yeah. So uh, that, that that could be the case. Yeah. Well, the, the interesting story, we had an Iacocca Mustang in the museum and the, we had the very first one sold to the public in the mm -hmm. museum for a while. And so the gentleman had bought it at one of those auctions where they bring out, you know, the first of kind of a car. And he, all he, he said, he had been drinking so much that every time he kept hearing Iacocca or the word Mustang, he kept raising his hand. He says, I don't know how, he says, I don't know how many times I may have bid against myself, but he says, I think I may have. But he said, <laughs> he said, but the more interesting story is that when the car was finally ready, they bring me the car and the rear license plate on it or the, the fake plate was six. And so he says, what's six? I bought number one. And the guy who delivered the car says, no, sir, Mr. Iacocca has number one. So I thought that was kind of funny. I guess the first five went to executives that put that car together. Uh, yeah. So there's there's always a, was the first to the public. Yes. You got the exactly. You got, sometimes you have to read the fine print in English. You got the first one to the available to the public. Yes. Um, and then you mentioned Craig Cunningham. I have to tell you very quickly. Uh, he was a he's a UCLA guy. Big supporter of UCLA I, I, type of thing. And when I first met him at uh, a couple car shows, and I went out to his car show, I purposely wore a USC hat. 
He is a he's 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 quite a character. Now again, for, yeah. for you people that know Southern California, Southern California has so many activities to go. It's not like going to Athens, Georgia, to see a Georgia football game. It's really different, except for when USC plays UCLA. It is war. It really is. It's the only time that college football has any meaning per se overall in Southern California. He was he was a great. Uh, he, he still is. Don't misunderstand me. Uh, he's still very much involved. He's he's, he's quite. A, but he is quite a character. So um, let me move on. Uh, you had mentioned about Silver Springs, um, and obviously uh, we've been there numerous times. I always love to get out right after the first of the year and go see cars, and that was one of the reasons why I know we like to come, get to see old friends. It, it has, you know, it has gone away as such. Um, but I'd like to just talk a little bit about how it got started. What was the thought process a little bit? Uh, what mo- what motivated National Parks Depot to do an event? Because, you know, a lot of, not, not that many car companies do, or I should say car part suppliers do this. A few do. But what was the process or the thought on uh, making a Silver Spring show? Well, the Silver Spring show was not uh, was not my brainchild. Uh, it uh, it was uh, the brainchild of a uh, of uh, a few members of uh, the Mid Florida Mustang Club in uh, in Orlando. Uh, Jeff Deaton, Sonny Roberts, and uh, Randy Betzinger. Glad I could pull. It. Randy's no longer with us, but uh, luckily Jeff and, and Sonny are. But uh, they wanted to do a show that was kind of an alternative to the then very popular Cypress Gardens Mustangs show, but they wanted a more laid back show that was not so judging intensive. So I think it was the second year that that show was being put on at Silver Springs. I decided to uh, go to it and I drove my, uh, my blue 69 Mach one down there, entered it in the show. And the first you know, immediately when I drive out onto the show field, down, you know, into the into the park at Silver Springs, I'm immediately struck by what an amazing venue for a car show. What a beautiful spot. And the second thing that may had me shaking my head is, why aren't there more cars here? Why isn't this more popular? Uh, why isn't it better attended? Uh, so at that event, I uh, made a point to figure out who the organizers were and uh, sat down, had a chat and told them that I would love to uh, support uh, and help promote from a sponsor's level. You know, and I could put flyers and outgoing packages here in the state of Florida and the southeast and help them grow the show. And they were they were all about that. So, uh, so we marched forward, me just simply being the sponsor. One of, and uh, them actually administrating the show. Well, it worked. And the following year, the show was double the size. And the following year after that, the show was double that size. The show kind of turned into a monster whereby they were kind of, uh, we, we, were, we were overwhelming the uh, available manpower with the club. You know, with any club, there's, uh, there's uh, you know, 200 members and maybe 15 that are willing to work. <laughs> you follow com, me? Com, common story, a very common story, unfortunately, but yes. So, so as uh, challenges, uh, so as we needed manpower and volunteers as it pertained to registration, uh, all of the work, uh, you know, sending out flyers, database keeping and all that stuff, every year more and more responsibilities were being uh, kind of lapsed at the club level and I was picking up all the pieces uh, as needed to make sure that the show would go on. To which I think about probably six or seven years in by that time, I was pretty much putting on the show. 
Uh, I think I might have had Randy still handling the registration for me at that time, but I was ordering the, the trophies. I was dealing with the park. Uh, I was uh, uh, getting hotel rooms for uh, for ballot counters. Shoot, I, I had my IT department write a program for counting ballots after that so we could automate it and not have to use so many people hand doing ballots because you got a show with 800 or 1,000 cars. Try a hand counting a bunch of ballots and you'll realize that your whole weekend's shot. It, it eventually, it, you know, there was a little bit of, I wouldn't say bad blood, but misunderstanding that I kind of, you know, or I, I'd heard people accuse me of hijacking the show or stealing the show. And uh, that kind of, that really hurt my feelings a little bit because I was just picking up pieces as they were falling to, about to fall on the ground. But uh, eventually it became the show that we administrated. I brought on the magazines, Mustang Monthly and, you know, all the Dobbs Ford publications as uh, as uh, free sponsors just to add panache to the show, to give it a halo. And also it geek people that the magazines would be there taking pictures and they thought, hey, my car might be get into a magazine or shown as a feature. So it just grew and grew and grew. And it was just a fun event. I kept it simple. Uh, I kept it participant choice. I did my best to keep it honest there was one year that i had to, that i busted a, a club that was stuffed in the ballot box for their uh, benefit and that uh, you can imagine how angry that made me um but uh boy did we have fun with it by the but by the time i finally said uh, you know this is going to be the last one and it's enough it had become such a monster we're talking 1500 pre-registrants 1100 day of show cars it become such a monster that uh, i had so much of my staff spending so much of their year just working the show that it was <laughs> we needed to take a break. And uh, and also the show was just kind of year after year after year, it was the same thing. And Silver Springs got taken over by uh, the state and they were pulling content out of the park. All the wild animals got taken out. All of the kids' rides and the carousel got taken out to where there was less and less for people to do uh, during the show as well. All that was really left was the glass bottom boats. So I didn't want the show to kind of fizzle out. You know, the old uh, Neil Young song is better to burn out than to fade away. I didn't want to fade away. I just announced, hey, this is the last one. And that really, really threw a bunch of energy. And uh, we had a huge, successful, great show for the last show. We blew it out with a bang. And I keep on threatening that I might do another Silver Spring show sometime soon. I don't want to get back into doing it every single year because it, it just really it, it engulfed me. So, uh, but I'd I'd like to do it, you know, kind of flash mob style, maybe once or every three or four years again. I, when you sit, when I'm listening to you, I have so many different thoughts because, of course, I was there for a number of those years, and I know that uh, depending sometimes on weather, the weather was was nice. You'd get more car. You had. You know, like you said, you the the space would be just filled to the part where sometimes as vendors, I think we were going to be asked to move up to the trees somewhere. You know, like yeah. we're going to have here. There's a tree house up here, and there's a room for you up there because right now we got to put another car here, and that was great. I mean, how many car shows actually have that kind of a situation where they just don't have the room? And so it was it was interesting. I mean, it was amazing to go to, and like I said, right off the first of the year, and it's in Florida. Uh, I don't know if there. Was any times we had really that bad of weather the last four or five six years that I went to it? Uh, some days, some weekends were better than others, but most of them were still your typical uh, Florida weather type of piece. But it was well attended, and it is missed. 
Uh, it's funny, um, you know, sometimes we talk to people. I was talking to Billy from Mustang Driver, and, you know, I see we're talking about, you know, they, they're looking to get more involved with some events themselves and actually be hands-on with events. And I said, well, I said, you know, it's a shame we know about with Silver Spring, and they said the same. No, no we really missed that show. But as yeah. you say, there's so much involved with it. There's so many uh, angles and things going on that you try to answer all the questions. You're trying to prevent the problems in advance. You can't do it no matter how hard you try. And, you know, then you feel like you you know, sometimes you feel like, okay, we made a little mistake, but sometimes you feel bad because people just don't have the, uh, the, the patience to be appreciative of what, how many good things are going on. So, but uh, no, I, you guys did a great show. You really got to see some great cars. I mean, you bring out some of the cars uh, from your own collection. Um, And, you know, I don't think you bring them out. I I can't speak for you by any means, but I kind of figure you probably don't bring all those cars out that often. And uh, it's not as simple as just, oh, here, let's get in the car and drive it over. Uh, You support it in every which way you can. And I think that's what makes you and National Parts Depot quite a bit different because you don't don't just service the, the hobby. You are the hobby. You are you're there to support with you know from the awards to to shows and such, and I'm gonna go to the next step and that is the sponsorship. I don't know of any major Mustang event that goes on that MPD doesn't have some connection to in a sponsorship level. Yeah. The, the name is there. It supports everything. And I think that's you know that's that's incredible. I mean that's you don't see my background was pro sports. And that was always money driven. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. It, it was simply money driven. I mean, we used to see that you know Coke would be the national drink, soft drink of the NFL, and in three years when the contract was up, Pepsi would be upset and they'd go in and they'd bid higher so that they could be it for the next three years. And then next after that, it'd be Coke. It'd always flip back and forth. There was never any loyalty to that. When I when I go to I, we still go to a number of events now that we're having a chance to get out a bit more, but MPD is there uh, with pits. You guys have taken a major uh, position with the pits. Uh, for those that don't know, that's Ponies in the Smokies uh, event, and you guys have a great exhibit there. Yeah, but that event's really taken off and getting big too. So it has, it has. Uh, I think it's it's it's, it's interesting that. The, the one thing I do see that with some of the events that have grown um, is that the, the the location is a bit of a destination. You said that earlier when you were talking about when you went to that car show in Florida and you saw, wow, what a great location this is. I think that has a big, big piece of that uh Yep. Hi, to make it to make it make it a destination. Uh, I know when MCA did the Mustangs at the Mansion, which was at the Biltmore, they sold mm-hmm. out. They sold out of five hundred spaces. In two hours, they're yeah. gone, and of yeah. course, and of course, that you you think that that's great, that's awesome. Can you think of though about the guys who then called later and how upset they were because they didn't get in in time or make the registration time? Yeah, and so you can't win for losing sometimes. You know, it, it's no, it's it's, no, it's, it, it's it's sad. Telling people to spend their entire weekend in a parking lot, it can that can get kind of old, and uh, and it really really uh, helps with an event. To have something else that's that's right there, you know, on property or close by, that can also, uh, you know, uh, capture people's interest and uh, and keep them busy through the weekend, not just standing there staring at their own car. So, uh, and and I appreciate you uh, your kind words about us supporting the shows. I, I really do make a concerted effort 
right down to small grassroots, you know, 75 car cruisings that we get emails or flyers in for looking for just stuff to, to shove in the goodie bags and everything is to try to support all that stuff because that's where the hobby, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where people are actually taking their cars and playing with them. And, uh, and it's, it's for decades, it has always been very, very discouraging to me. I won't name any names. Of course I won't, but you know, like that, the, the, you know, the Biltmore show, for instance, uh, we NPD laid out a good, healthy sponsorship for that show. And then I see other parts suppliers, that didn't give a penny, except they wrote a two hundred dollar check for a, for a vendor space, so that they could come roll out their goods at the show, and uh, and exploit it for selling parts without yeah. a dime of sponsorship. And uh, that just always, I, I just always thought to myself, I, I see, I, I see what those guys are in this for, and uh, and and it's not for the love of the hobby that I can see, because you know, my father and I. Uh, we go to a, a myriad of our different favorite shows that we try to uh, participate. We we participate, man. We if anybody's seen our car collection and and how much work and effort we put into all of that, and then we take them out and we do show our stuff because that's that's our passion, that's our love. We've been doing this all of our life. We're not just uh, uh, selling parts because it's a good business plan. It's interesting you say that, as because I mentioned about my my background. I was always more used to uh, if you have a soft drink sponsor or you have a parts sponsor or whatever, that's it. They they own that territory. That's their footprint. And it's funny yeah. you say that because then I would go to a car show. As we started getting involved in the mid two thousands, uh, we would go to a car show, and you know you've got sponsored by such and such company, but then you see competitors of that company there also. And I always right. kind of stretched my head and I said, well, maybe in the car world, this is something that's acceptable. But to me, I always thought that that was really, that, that wasn't, I mean, uh, I'll be honest with you. I've had, I've had some other car part guys call me about the National Mustang Day decal. We don't tell them, we just tell them, sorry, it's not going to happen. We have a sponsor. That's it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's how it should be. I mean, I, I couldn't I couldn't answer the question to myself if I had put somebody else on there besides yourselves. It's are, not a lot. It's not a lot different than going to a wedding and not bringing a gift. Yeah. <laughs> good, good, good analogy. You're absolutely right. Good analogy. Well, I want to move on. Keep moving on a little bit. This is something I've kind of I've learned a little bit on the side. And I know because it, it, one is you. Well, let me just go over this way. You guys support museums quite well behind the scenes. You are a sponsor to our to the Mustang Owners Museum, which we appreciate. We have a display with your parts and your mm -hmm. catalogs here. But I also understand you guys are pretty. You and I say you guys, I mean you as a collective NPD. You you do support well beyond the events, well beyond uh, shows. You do support museums because, of course, museums are basically, you know, the, they're the they're the history point, so to speak, of cars. And mm -hmm. I don't know, if, you know, again, I don't know if people realize that or not, but I think that's just, it. Just kind of gives it should give enthusiasts the idea how deep your connection is. It's not just on the surface to sell parts. It's not just on the surface to be a visible at a show. It's also, Hey, we're, you know, you're, you're doing things for museums so that they can continue to showcase the history of cars. And that's to me is phenomenal. I mean that you don't, you don't find companies do that this, these days because they're all looking about how much a return can I get for my, uh, how much of my return do I get for my investment? And, you know, museums, you know, they're not going to be the most, you know, to a degree, they may not be the best 
avenue to spend a dollar, and I hate saying that, <laughs> believe me, <laughs> but it's the most appreciative dollar you spend. I will tell you that. <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> I'm trying to wiggle out of that comment. But anyway, uh, I, I wanted to mention that because I think that's important that people realize that you go beyond and you go behind the scenes. You, you don't invest just to have your name on the front door. You invest to make sure that certain projects and things that are dear to you and your, fa your father, your family, and the MPD team continue. And so I, I wanted to let people know or be aware of that. And I want to say thank you from us. And I think there's probably a few other museums that would probably want to say the same thing. So I just want to bring that up so people are aware that uh, your your involvement goes well beyond just what you see on the surface. Thank you. So uh, that just that's for my uh, my two cents. Anyway, um, I, lastly, a couple of things I wanted to point out, I wanted to mention when you were t when you were talking about the Leah Coke Award. I kind of kept thinking in my back of my head, I said, well, the one person that should get it probably is did not. Uh, and I think that, and I don't want to make this sound like a, you know, I don't want to sound wrong, but probably with all your effort and everything you've done and promoted and moved the hobby forward, I don't know how many awards you do get. I hopefully people do recognize and acknowledge that. But I was really proud that the Mustang Owners Museum's membership, I don't have nothing to do with it, the membership voted you into the Hall of Fame for this coming year. And it's nice to see that because sometimes you, you want to make, you, I, I hope my members don't misunderstand how I'm going to say this, but I'm glad that they, they took the time and they appreciated you. It makes me understand that they do understand who is part of who's important and who are parts of this. So I wanted to mention that to people to know that uh, we're hoping that you'll be able to join us for the installation dinner. Oh, I've got I've got you on my calendar, and 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 now I, absolutely I won't miss that. I I really Steve I don't I I have to admit I wasn't aware of what process uh, you did up there at the museum for uh, for uh, choosing your Hall of Fame recipients. Uh, uh, I didn't uh, know whether or not it was uh, you and uh, a handful of you know board members or something that would uh, that would come up with the list. I, I had no idea that it was voted on by all membership. And holy cow, is that humbling? I mean, that just really is. Well, that, that, blows, me, that, that blows me away. So uh, so yeah, you're gonna. You're going to have me there. <laughs> well, excellent. I'm, I'm glad I got to throw that in. Uh, uh, my my brother-in-law, he was involved with the Hall of Fame on the sports side in Northern California. And they did, it was for a high school. They were best athletes, whatever. And their first year they did this, this group got together. They came up with 15 names that they inducted into this Hall of Fame. And he told mm -hmm. me about it. And I said, I gotta be honest with you. That's not that impressive. We had 15 guys, you know, that that are in the Hall of Fame. I said, well, that's kind of it's kind of wrong. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, what are you gonna do the next year? You know, you yeah. take 15 this year. Now you, how many are you gonna find next year? You know, it's probably not gonna be as many. It'll be maybe fewer. And then what was your process? He says, well, these are just, you know, it's just us guys sitting around, and these are the names we knew that maybe went out to professional sports or they got college scholarships or what have you. And I'm going, okay. And what about the poor guy who maybe, you know, there's always that, you know, if you remember Eddie the Eagle, no, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not trying to compare you to that at all. No, but there's always, <laughs> there's, but what I'm saying is I played sports in high school, and uh, there's always some guys there that probably weren't as gifted athletically you know they they just didn't have the coordinations and such 
But my God, they tried. They really mm-hmm. did. And to me, that would be important to recognize. But anyway, I'm, I'm kind of getting off topic. But no, I, I wanted to make sure that it was the membership. I did not want to have where I would sit there with a couple of guys and, you know, eat beer and have a pizza and eat beer. No, have eat uh, pizza and have a beer. I'm sorry. <laughs> and uh, uh, and kind of start talking about that. And I have to be honest with you. They have come up with the, the, uh, the process is pretty simple. We send out a ballot. We ask them to give us a name. We take the top three names in each of the four categories. We send out a second ballot with those names, pick one in each category, and there you go. And so uh, we've been we've been pleased with what they've done. But sometimes you start to wonder, you know, do they, you know, you're, you're glad they, they're, they're picking. Their, in my opinion, everybody that's been picked has been more than worthy. But it is done by the members. And so we, I appreciate that, and I appreciate that you can make it. So um, you get to come up yeah. and see, see this place for the first time, and uh, we will uh, we will have the extent the expansion done by then. Uh, in fact, contractors have been running around all day today <laughs> working on it, but uh, so we're we're making some headway. So we really are pleased that you'll be able to come and uh, and join us. So right. we'll, yes. uh, we'll we'll definitely count on that. So a uh, couple quick questions then that I like to ask our guests if we could. What's your favorite Mustang? Oh boy. Uh, six, 1969 Boss 429. Is it black? Mine is black, yes. But uh, but if you're asking me what my favorite Mustang is in general, even if I didn't own one, I I, I think they're fantastic in just about every color they offered that year. Yeah. I uh, I did get the photo from Colin yesterday, and I uh, sent him an email back, let him know I got it. But I said, now who who's in the picture with that Boss 429? It was a really good picture. You're you're I think you're the only one up there. No, Gail Holderman has a Mustang on his. So it was it was neat to see. It was a good picture with you. So I think yeah. I, I think uh, there's uh, Donald Farr has a has a an interesting oh, angle oh, down on a Mustang too, right? Yes, he does. You're absolutely right. Yep, he does. I see that now. So, but it's nice to see that that connection. Anyway, how old were you when you got your first Mustang? Fourteen. Was it something um, something you had to restore, or something you took off and went to high school with right away? <laughs> I won't get too uh, long on this, but it was a it was a thousand dollar purchase that I did with my own money, age fourteen. It ran, but barely. Uh, it was a restoration project. It was a nice car to start with. Holy cow! Back in uh, that would have been nineteen eighty one. But uh, as a 14-year-old kid, I quickly became overwhelmed with that project. Uh, my, my dad got me dug in way too deep, and he was way too busy to help me dig out of it. Um, I kept tr- tr- chugging on it, but uh, leading up to my 16th birthday, I was nowhere near finished with the car. So uh, my mom uh, intervened, and uh, we worked out something else for my wheels. But uh, the Mach 1 project, I sold to... Uh, a father and son team with the same last name as me, Schmidt, and uh, uh, Gary, uh, the son, uh, and I have become uh, the best of friends ever since then because every time he was in buying parts, I would take care of him since I knew that he, they were restoring my old car. And uh, that car is actually sitting out in our collection right now. I, I store it for Gary because he's working on completing the restoration on his uh, winter blue Mach one that was his daily driver back in those days when he bought my red car. So it's amazing how these connections happen. It's a, it's yep. just so amazing. Uh, last question then, what is the one that got away that you, you would own, but you kind of go, well, you know, cause guys always say, Oh, I should have never sold it or I should have never done this with it. Do you have one like that? I traded away to my own financial benefit. 
it worked out. I, you know, I made out like a bandit on the deal, but now in hindsight here in 2022, the, the money didn't, doesn't mean that much to me anymore. I just wish I had that car back. It was a, a very rare 1970 Mach 1 barcode four speed. California car still have the uh, the California you know uh, venting emission stuff in the in the trunk. Uh, Calypso coral with vermilion interior. It was just a bright and loud seventy Mach one. And what I didn't know at the time because I never got a Marty report back when I owned it. This is the mid nineties, I'd say like right around nineteen ninety five. Uh, I didn't pay anything for the car. It ran and drove great, and it was a rust free. You know, California car. It was a great car. Uh, it, the, the guy had done a very amateurish, uh, not very, he was no craftsman, let's put it this way, restoration, but most of the interior was still original and mint in the car. Anyways, I'm going on too long with it. When I sold it, the gentleman, uh, I didn't sell it, I traded it for a Concours Restored uh, Q Code 428 Super Cobra Jet Drag Pack 1969 Fairlane Cobra, formal roof, black on black. It was just gorgeous and restored. You know, I won a lot of trophies with that car. And because I was starting to resist the trade, he tossed in a mint 1986 uh, 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 Thunderbird V8 that he had dressed up as a turbo coupe uh, to make the deal happen. So I drove that Thunderbird for a little bit, then I sold it. And then I wound up selling the, the, the Fairlane years later for a substantial amount of money. And I had hardly anything invested in that Mach 1. So like I said, financially, I made out great. But what I learned after I sold it, that it was also originally a white shaker car with the white stripes, oh. which I don't think I've ever seen a Calypso Coral with Vermilion no. interior, 428 with white stripes. It's got to be a one-of-one one car. And that one got away from me. It came up on the market because the guy I sold it to did a beautiful restoration, but then he sold it without telling me because I would have bought it back from him. And I was a little bit aggravated about that. Then it came up for sale uh, by a dealer in Ohio. And I kept on seeing it for sale in Hemmings at this dealer just south of Cleveland. And I drug my feet and drug my feet, but I was going up to a car show up there at uh, in uh, around Canton, Ohio. And I was like, you know what? When I get up there, I'm going to go over to that dealer, take a look at the car. I'm going to buy the damn car back. I'm going to get my Mach 1 back. So a week leading up to that day of, of going up to that show, I called the dealer just to kind of arrange an appointment for me to come look at the car. And he informs me, yeah, we just sold it yesterday. It's going to Australia. Oh, <laughs> your typical day so it is gone. It is gone. If it, ever, if it ever comes back to U.S. shores again, I'm going to be a hawk after that car. Well, that is definitely, a day, as they say, a day late. Wow. Yeah. That's just, that's, that's hard. That's not just the one you want to get back. That's just heartbreaking. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you probably already had it in your mentally, it was already in your garage. So yeah. that's, 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 that would be hard. That would be hard. <laughs> wow. Oh, I can't complain because for the ones that have gotten away, I've gotten very, very lucky in the ones that I've found. So. Well, I, I remember at the Silver Springs, one of the awards that you'd give out would be the hard luck story. And I have to be honest with you, the gentleman that we've talked to and asked that question, you right now would be the top candidate for hard luck story on the one that got away. That's just, that's just, <laughs> that one is, wow, that, that's, that's tough. That one's tough. But Rick, I really, really, I, I appreciate the time that you spent with us sharing the stories and getting to know you a little bit more. And, and so for our listeners too, I can't, I, I don't want to make this sound too sappy, but you do so much for the hobby. Eileen, I, you may, I don't know if you know the lady Eileen Chambers by chance her and her no, husband her, 
her I don't believe her, I do. Well, her and her husband, Don Chambers, in the early, late 70s, 80s, and into the 90s, whatever, they were one of the major restoration shops in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were very deep into the hobby. I mean, they collected stuff. They 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 were deeply into Mustangs. But anyway, when uh, we announced about doing the museum, uh, she called me up. And when I was in Los Angeles a couple months later, I had lunch with her. And she looked at me and she said, how important are the parts and the restoration companies to the hobby? She, and she wanted to get, I guess she wanted to get my mindset on how, what I thought of that. And I made it very clear. Without the MPDs, without the restoration shops, there is no hobby. It's just not going to happen. Yes, you can go to you can go to junkyards and get the parts, but those aren't going to last very long. And pretty soon, it's going to. I hate to say this, it may be like it's kind of like Cuba. The next thing you see is a Mustang body, but inside of it, it's got a it's got a Subaru engine or something, yeah, you yeah. know, kind of a thing. So I said, without without that, I mean, yes, you know, Ford sells them. But you guys maintain them. You guys keep that's, them on the road. A, a two-way, it's a two-way street, though, because without the popularity of the classic Mustang and the hunger and demand for parts, there would be no financial feasibility. But by just the tooling costs alone for reproducing all these parts would not be a viable business without so many tens of thousands of enthusiasts out there clamoring for those parts and, and laying their money down on the on the on the counter for those parts. So uh, so without you, without the hobby, uh, I don't know what I'm doing at this point. You know, no, you, I'm, in, you, I'm just installing uh, braces on kids <laughs> or something. I, I don't know what I would have done. So. No, no, you're absolutely right. It is it is your typical chicken and the egg story. Which one? Which one came first? Well, it, sometimes they coincide at the same time, but the supporter. And you're right. I mean, without the without the cars and needing parts and without the you know restorations, it, it is a two way. But it, obviously, if they didn't have the parts, can't fix the cars. So or restore them. So uh, I want to thank you again uh, for being on this. Uh, I enjoyed the conversation. I look forward now to seeing you in April uh, yeah. and being part of this. Uh, I will be sending you more information. We get get along, go along with this. But again, thank you. I really appreciate the time. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Steve. Really appreciate it. We hope you've enjoyed listening to another episode of the Mustang Owners Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss any episodes. For more information on the museum, please go to mustangownersmuseum.com and you'll find additional information on upcoming events.